This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello, and thank you for joining the program. I hope all is good with you and your week has gone well. In the text we're following, Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, we've just completed the section on how to apply the five powers both as an ongoing spiritual practice during life and a practice to concentrate on at the time of death. Just to recap, the five powers are the power of intention, the power of the white seed, the power of remorse, the power of prayer, and the power of familiarity. If we can practice these during the rest of our lives, and then when dying, it is said we will almost definitely have a happy rebirth. As we heard Lama Zoparumbashe said in our last program, even if you practice other power techniques, you may still doubt whether it will close the door to the lower realms at the time of death. But if you practice transferring the consciousness with these five powers, it is definite that you will never be reborn in a bad birthplace, that is, in the lower realms. So it seems worthwhile to make ourselves familiar as possible with these powers so that we can concentrate on them when we die, if we have enough time and don't die in a car crash or some such. Now before we go on to the next section of the text, let's set a good motivation for being with the program, as we usually do. On the website samyadharma.org, in a response to a student's question, Pakchok Rinpoche has this to say about developing bodhicitta. The bodhicitta of aspiration means constantly reminding oneself about the wish to benefit beings and for all beings to be enlightened. So constantly thinking that thought and not forgetting it is aspiring bodhicitta. Now, with that same thought, if we integrate it with everything, absolutely anything we do, that becomes application. With that thought you drink, with that thought you sleep, and with that thought you practice, talk or act. With that thought doing dharma becomes bodhicitta of application. But we need to be clear here. What is dharma? When we say the word dharma, it doesn't just mean the Buddha's teachings. Sometimes we draw this kind of distinction and think about doing dharma means only sitting in meditation sessions or attending Buddhist ceremonies or pujas at a temple. But in a bigger way, dharma can mean everything. Eating, drinking, sleeping, walking taking showers, feeding your pets, watering your garden, sending an email or receiving phone calls. All that can be practice. And if we see that all is Dharma, then every function and every thought becomes the path. Many of us think too narrowly and we see our Dharma practice, our path, as only one hour per day. For the true practitioner, every moment of life is the path. And that means a whole day, all 24 hours. This is because they do every activity with the intention of bodhicitta. Normally, we tend to make a separation between what is our dharmic and our normal lives. We actually are limiting ourselves this way. However, if we remember the intention well, then everything you do becomes different. Your aspiration always needs to be very vast. When we apply we should start by taking small steps. We want to benefit all beings, but we need to begin somewhere, right? We start with ourselves. 
It is best to begin with one family member, one friend, one action or one hour-long session. It is important to have the vast aspiration, but as acting beginners, we need to start small so that we don't have regret. By being smart this way, we don't feel the burden and we don't experience burnout. We have to realize that our intention and our application don't reach the same level right away. They're not exactly parallel. Aspiration can be vast while the action starts less vast. Slowly we will improve and our application will equal the aspiration. And that truly is Buddhahood. Right now we start with small steps. So we spend an hour doing practice and an hour helping people. We clean the temple and we clean our altar shrine. Just start slowly and then begin extending. Naturally, it will start to add up. And that is Pakshak Rumbashe. So now we are together for about half an hour, which is not all that long. And we can spend a short while actually making sure that we are acting out of that bodhicitta thought. This is very important, because if we don't remember this great, great motivation, we might sit with the radio on, but with our attention on the exciting apps and messages on our smartphone. Then the motivation is obviously not bodhicitta, but something else entirely, isn't it? So let's take a moment of our short time together to set a very good motivation. If you really cannot make it bodhicitta, at least think that you are with the program today so that you can attain enlightenment for yourself. Thank you. Now let's continue with Nam Kapel and his text, Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun. Leaving the five powers behind in terms of this series of programs, but I hope not in our minds, we go on to the next section, which comes under the heading, The Measure of Having Trained the Mind. Now remember that Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun is actually a commentary of another text titled Seven Points of Mind Trainings. So when Namkar Pal says, the text says, integrate all practices into one, he's quoting from the seven points text. He then writes, since all the Buddha's teachings and the commentaries to them were meant to subdue the misconception of self, and since that is the con conception that is to be eradicated or exhausted, we should examine whether the activities of our body, speech and mind favor and encourage the misconception of self or oppose it. If we find that they favor it, then we've missed the point of hearing, contemplating and meditating on the doctrine. If, however, they oppose it, that is a sign of a successful practice of the doctrine and that we have engaged in authentic mind training. This is the scale against which the practitioner should be weighed. We should ensure that we are not disappointed when subjected to such an assessment. So, we instinctively grasp at a self that appears to exist independently and inherently within our mind and body complex. When we don't analyze in any way, that self is very real to us, as real as the chair we are sitting on or the earth on which we walk. It appears to be different from everything else in our experience. Were I to meet you, for instance, I would automatically think there is a real you that is in essence different and separate from me. Of course, we are the same in having two eyes, two ears, one nose, one mouth and so on. 
but we appear different in so many other ways. We like different foods, we like to dance or not to different music, we play different sports, and so on and so on, and the list can be endless. Mostly, we operate on the basis of ourself, and so we condition ourselves to like some things or events and not like others. We develop ideas about ourselves and others based on this real appearing me and you. Of course, if my most vivid experience is of myself, I will react to everything as it relates to that self. When something appears attractive to that self, I will want to possess it, but anything that appears unattractive will be banished with hatred or dislike. Anything that is neither attractive nor unattractive will be effectively ignored. For instance, if that self likes chocolate cake and at a tea party where an unevenly cut chocolate cake is the centerpiece, that self or I will try to get the biggest piece for myself. But this is not true just for chocolate cake. In fact, everything I do will be informed by this idea that I should get the best and biggest for myself. Or at least I should get what I want and not to be involved with anything I do not want. But now what happens when that I cannot get its way? Someone else gets the big piece of cake before I do. I think we all know what follows. Anger, disappointment and the finger of blame pointing at the person who thwarts my desire. And so unhappiness for both myself and others follows. Isn't this very basic example a template, though, for how we create suffering and misery? And if we look at what is behind that suffering, we will always find the sense of a separate and distinct self, what we may loosely label the ego. If that is the case, we should look closely at the self and see what its nature is, don't you think? If it's going to cause us so much greed, disappointment and suffering, we should at least know what it is. And yet, of all the people I have ever asked the question, who or what actually are you, none have been able to answer. When we search for this thing we call me, or try to define it, we always come up with either a blank or some description that is quite inadequate. We cannot really say, and yet all our actions and reactions are based on this sense of self. In fact, the more we search for this I, the more elusive it becomes like a ghost that appears just at the corner of your eye but will never arise directly in front of you. A ghost that is so elusive you don't really know whether something is there or your imagination is playing overtime. Actually, it's the latter. Your imagination is playing overtime. This is what is meant by the misconception of the self. We believe instinctually in a separate and distinct self, but such a thing does not exist at all. Of course, that does not mean that a self does not exist at all. Gil Fronsdale makes a very nice argument about the, what the Buddha said about the self in a talk on Anatta and the Four Noble Truths, which you can find on www.insightmeditationcenter.org. Gil is the teacher at the Insight Meditation Center in San Francisco and was a monk in the Burmese tradition and a student of Jack Cornfield. This is what he says. People are often perplexed by the Buddha's teaching of anatta, or not-self. 
One reason is because in different religions and schools of psychotherapy and philosophy, as well as in everyday language, the word self is used in many ways. When people talk about the self without defining their terms, they may be unknowingly talking about different things. So, to understand the Buddha's teaching of not-self, we must understand how the Buddha defined self, or in his language, atta. First, we must distinguish between the two uses of the word atta. In some religious circles at the time of the Buddha, atta referred to a form of metaphysical self. A metaphysical de definition of self is any theory of the real nature of self. For example, a permanent abiding essence that survives death, or a true self that is larger or more essential than the personality or the individual. In this sense, Atta could be translated into English as the self, that's with a capital S, or the soul with a capital S. Quite distinct from the metaphysical use, Atta was more commonly used as a reflective pronoun, like the English word self in such terms as oneself and myself. In this latter sense, it was used as a simple convention of speech, rather than referring to any metaf metaphysical or essential idea of the self. We must keep both of these uses of utter in mind in understanding the Buddha's teachings. On the one hand, he clearly did not accept any met metaphysical definitions of self. On the other hand, he emphasized the suffering that can come with clinging to anything as belonging to or defining myself. The Buddha's path of practice leads to the ending of this clinging. The most common metaphysical self, again with a capital, against which the Buddha was arguing, is implicitly defined in his Anatta Lanka Sutta, the discourse on Anatta. For something to be Atta, according to this view, it needed three components. It had to have complete control over the body, feelings, thoughts, impulses, intentions, consciousness or perceptions. It had to be permanent and it had to be blissful. In this discourse, the Buddha makes it clear that nothing in our psychophysical experience has these three qualities and is therefore fit to be regarded as an atta or self. Here in the modern West, this ancient Indian definition of the self does not have much, if any, meaning. However, we have our own notions of what the self is, or what it needs to be. In part, these are the legacy of Western ideas of soul, and in part, they derive from the strong human drive to identify with certain things as defining what the self is. We identify ourselves with our thoughts, feelings, consciousness, volition, personal characteristics, or with a sense of continuity. Held lightly and provisionally, such identifications may be useful. Held tightly, they are self-limiting. If we expend the energy to cling to anything as the definition of the self, we will sooner or later suffer. In order to find a deeply abiding peace, we need to learn to let go of any attachment to or habit of fixating on self-identity. Contrary to popular conception, we have no record of the Buddha ever saying there is no self. In the entire preserved volumes of the Buddha's discourses, in only one place did someone actually ask the Buddha, is there no self? The Buddha refused to answer the question. The same person then asked, 
Is there a self? This too the Buddha declined to answer. What the Buddha did say repeatedly is that no particular aspect of our psychophysical being qualifies as atta or the self. Not our body, not our feelings, not our thoughts, not our dispositions, and not our consciousness. The Buddha's teachings on self and not-self get even more subtle and fascinating. Aside from the specific definition of self he refuted in the Nanata Lakana Sutta, he argues that it's not useful to frame Buddhist practice through any conception of self. Views about the existence or non-existence of a self or identifying the self with any characteristic or experience, even awareness itself, leads to a jumble of speculation. And more importantly, he claimed that it would not lead to liberation. As an alternative to framing the spiritual life around the self, the Buddha suggests instead that we look at our experience through the framework of the Four Noble Truths, focusing honestly and directly on our suffering, the grasping that causes it, the peace or happiness that results from the release of grasping, and the way of living that supports a sense of well-being. The Buddha's teachings point us away from looking for the self or trying to understand or improve the self. Instead, it suggests that we pay attention to the fear, desire, ambition and clinging that motivate the building of a self-identity. Perhaps we feel that we are defective in some way and that our meditation practice will help us make or find a better self. Can we instead find the particular suffering that is connected with wanting to improve the self Liberation entails releasing our suffering, not avoiding it, seeking relief from it or compensating for it. This doesn't necessarily mean that we dwell on our suffering either or that suffering never ceases. Indeed, the third noble truth reminds us that there is a cessation to suffering. If you were to go to Africa to photograph the wildlife, you could walk all over the plains looking for the different animals or you could sit by the watering hole where all the animals eventually come. Likewise, practice becomes very simple if we pay attention, carefully and non-reactively, to our suffering, that is, the contractions, restrictions and stresses in our body, mind and heart. For the sake of liberation, what you do and do not need to know will come to you if you simply watch your suffering and its sensation. You will see the grasping, and you will see the possibility of genuine happiness that comes from releasing that grasping. May you know the peace of non-grasping to both self and no-self. And now to complement that, let me include a story from Gill's book, A Monastery Within. The story is titled The Many Ways of Sweeping, and in the introduction, Gill talks of a monastery where a number of monks and nuns lived and practiced. The head of the monastery was a nun who he describes like this. The abbess was a most exceptional person. She seemed to always have a smile in her eyes. When she looked at you, it seemed as if she knew you better than you knew yourself. She once told the following story of how she first came to the monastery. When I was 13, my family would send me up to the mountains around the monastery to collect edible plants for our evening meal. These foraging trips were the only work I enjoyed doing. Otherwise, I tried every trick I could to avoid work on my family's farm. I was still in school, but it held no interest for me. 
My anger was a welcome barrier to learning anything the teacher was teaching. Occasionally, during my foraging trips, I would pass by the monastery while the monks were out sweeping the leaves from the many pathways. The first time I saw the monks working, I was mesmerized in watching them going about their work. For many months after, I would often stop a while to watch them sweep. They went about their work silently and with an efficiency that seemed effortless. Then one day, a monk walked up to me and asked what I was doing in the mountains. I became defensive. I resented anyone who tried to get to know me. So, instead of answering the question, I countered by asking what he was doing. The monk smiled and answered that he had been told to sweep and that he was just killing time until he could return to his room for a nap. As I walked home later that day, I thought about his answer and was glad that he did not seem any different than me. When I was required to do anything, my heart was never in it, and my attitude was that I was passing time until I could be excused. Taking a nap was certainly preferable. The next time I passed the monastery on one of my foraging trips, another monk stopped his sweeping and also asked what I was doing. Again, I resented the question. It felt like an intrusion. However, this time, I did not feel as defensive. But again, I deflected the question by asking what he was doing. He answered that he was doing extra work in hopes of being assigned to the kitchen, which was warm in the winter and always seemed to have one or two extra sweet rice cakes in the cupboard for the cooks to nibble on. Without saying anything, I nodded and left to continue my foraging. The monk's answer resonated with me since I too liked being warm and eating sweet cakes was one of my favorite activities, second only to sleeping. The next time I passed the monastery, a third monk asked me the same question. This time, I was surprised I wasn't offensive or resentful of being asked. However, again I deflected the question back to him. He explained that he was sweeping as a spiritual discipline to help him overcome his anger. Later, as I walked the mountain trail with my bag of plants, I felt a kinship with this monk. Like me, he had anger. But I was perplexed that he would want to overcome it because I felt my anger protected me. A week later, I was again outside the monastery watching the monk sweep. Yet another monk came up to me. When he asked what I was doing, I mumbled something about collecting plants. I doubt he could hear me, for my voice was so faint. But I did muster up some strength to ask him what he was doing. He replied he was beautifying the monastery so that others might be inspired in their work of spiritual transformation. I glanced down the well-swept paths and realized that one reason I was compelled to watch the monks sweep was that they seemed to be transforming the paths into something that made me feel safe and calm. The next time I stood outside the monastery watching the monks, I was drawn to walk over to a fifth monk, and before he could ask me what I was doing, I asked him. He looked at me with kind eyes. After what seemed a long but soft silence, he explained that he was sweeping to be of service to all who used the monastery. Practicing in this way, he hoped to find ultimate peace. As I left the monastery that day, I thought his answer strange. I didn't understand what he meant by service and by peace, and I certainly couldn't see how these had any value for me. 
The next time I visited the monastery was the last time. I had an unfamiliar feeling as I walked up into the mountains. Just before I reached the monastery, I realized that I was looking forward to seeing the monks again. I felt a warm glow of gladness in anticipation of what I would find. When I arrived at the monastery, I walked right up to an old monk who seemed absorbed in his sweeping, and I inquired what he was doing. His words washed over me like cleansing water. Me? I'm not doing anything. My self-consciousness was swept away long ago. There is no I that does anything. Now the awakened life moves through my body, my heart, my mind and my mouth. No one sweeps, there are no paths to sweep, and there is no dirt to brush away. I was stunned by his answer, and before I could respond, he handed me the broom and walked away. I have been here at the monastery ever since. Can you see what the story says about that self that we are so entranced by? Which sweeper are you on the spiritual path? That one that does it is told as quickly as he can so he can get back to his bed? Or the one who does extra work so that he can have some warm and sweet reward? Or the one who sweeps to overcome anger? The one who beautifies the monastery for others? Or the one who wants to be of service to all others? If you are the old monk who passed on the broomstick, I am surprised that you are listening to our program. Apart from this old realized one, all the others were still sweeping with an eye, a self still involved. Some gross, some subtle, but still. What happens when we find out that self was never there in the first place? It is by watching out for the self and all its wants, desires and toddler behavior that we can eventually see it for what it is. And so Namkar Pal says that we should concentrate on this one thought of the misconceived self and whenever we see it poking its head up and urging us to act, we should see its fault. The next instruction from seven points of mind training that Namkar Pal brings up is primary importance should be given to the two witnesses. And he comments, Other people may also serve as witnesses, commenting that you are engaged in proper practice and that your mind has become smooth and cool, but this is of no help. The vitally important thing is that when we examine ourselves under any circumstances, we should see that we are not deceiving, fooling or embarrassing ourselves. If we have trained our minds with regard to the most unpleasant worldly phenomena and achieve what we desire, this shows that we have trained our minds. So the two witnesses are oneself and other beings. Both witness one's behavior and can make some judgment about how one is going. Namkarpel points out that the more important of these two is definitely oneself, for only we truly know whether we are really training our mind or not. It is sometimes quite easy to appear to be a holy person at peace with oneself, but in reality to still be under the sway of self-cherishing and consequent hidden bad behavior. So we have to be careful with ourselves. But now our time is up and we're going to have to leave further discussion until next time. Thanks for joining me today and I hope we can be together again next week. Please dedicate any positive potential that we've accumulated with the program today to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thank you 
and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.